heart disease, one of the most common problems in the United States, and we're wasting tens of billion dollars on ineffective procedures. Why? Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. Thomas Cowan, who is a founding board member of the Weston Price Foundation. He's been on the on the broadcast here a few times previously, but we've got some exciting information now that was just published and released showing the ineffectiveness of stents, which is a surgical procedure used to remediate the damages from coronary artery disease at the cost of tens of billions of dollars a year in the United States alone, and they don't work. So welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for having me again. So why don't we elaborate uh, on some of the new findings and then uh, expand on some of the better alternatives because you you are still practicing and and regularly implement many of them. Yeah. Well, if if I could, uh, because I actually did my homework a little bit this time. Yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> right. I. I, it might be good to put this recent Lancet stent study in context. Sure, that's always so, a good, good start. Why don't we, why don't we begin there? So, so the context is when you're talking about heart disease, uh, there's a number of different parameters or ways of evaluating it that are crucial. So, for instance. If you, if you have somebody with heart disease and you, and you do some sort of intervention, it's nice to know if the person will live longer because of your intervention. That's mm -hmm. certainly one way of assessing. There's another way, which is to say, will this person be more or less likely to have a heart attack because of this intervention? And that's also an, an important thing to, to know. And then there's another way, which is, is this person who presumably uh, their main complaint in the first place was they were having chest pain, sometimes shortness of breath, sometimes other symptoms like, but does it alleviate the, uh, particularly the chest pain, otherwise known as angina that they're having? Mm -hmm. So there's probably more, but those are the three biggies. And the important thing to note about this study was that um, what's called PCI or you know, percutaneous interventions, which is another word for saying inserting a catheter into somebody's coronary arteries and doing something to unblock these arteries. Uh, this has been studied for many years because it's been going on for many years. And I, I would actually like to read something from a New England Journal of Medicine 2004 study, which was called the Courage Study. And this is a direct quote from that article, which says, in summary, our trial compared optimal medical therapy alone or in combination with PCI, which means stents, as an additional management strategy in patients with stable coronary artery disease. Although the addition of PCI to optimal medical therapy reduced the prevalence of angina, it did not reduce long-term rates of death non-fatal myocardial infarction, nor hospitalization for acute coronary syndrome. And that's, of course, a mouthful. But what it means is the, the state of the literature before this current Lancet study was that doing stents or other 
interventions, which actually includes bypasses, has never been shown to help people live longer or to prevent further heart attacks. They have been shown to be, to be of aid in people who are having an acute MI, but in anything but that indication, the state of the art or the state of the science was that they don't let people, they don't help people live longer and they don't prevent further heart attacks. But as this study says, they say that the indication was for relieving angina. So that was the state of where we were at 13 years ago. So it was actually not appropriate and possibly even, you know, not allowed to tell somebody we were doing a bypass or stent so that you would live longer or not have a heart attack. You could tell them that they, you could do it because you're having chest pain and this will relieve your chest pain. But the interesting thing about it, as you know, is there was never a double-blind study uh, assessing whether, in fact, it did relieve angina because this was always considered to be unethical. Uh, but somehow, and I don't know the history of how this came about, but this group of car interventional cardiologists in England somehow got it through their review board that they could actually take these patients and do uh, stents on them who are having stable angina, which is where at least 90% of the stents are done for exactly these kind of people, but that in half of the group, and as matched as they could, they did a control, which meant they put the catheter in, took the catheter out without doing a stent, told the patients they fixed their, their blockage, and then saw what happened as far as chest pain and exercise tolerance. And in a way, to a lot of people's surprise, but not mine, and I'm probably not yours, what they found was there was no difference in the chest pain, the angina, in the people who had the stent procedure versus those who didn't have the stent procedure, uh, which means that the final uh, indication for doing a stent, which is to relieve angina, is no longer valid, and it's hard to come up with what the indication is at this point, except in the rare instance of an acute MI. And just to put an additional perspective on this, this is a very common surgical procedure to the point that it's done a million times every year in the United States alone. And right. I, I, you might have a better idea on the cost of it, but my guess is it's at least 10000 probably even closer to $50,000 to put one of those puppies in or multiple of them. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the cost is, but I don't think yeah, it's anywhere so, near ten thousand. At least not in San Francisco. You can't even, yeah. you can't even uh, walk into the emergency room for less than a few thousand. Yeah. So, so for basically, if it was a thousand dollars, that would be a billion dollars in cost, and you know it's more than that. It's, so it's probably over. It could be potentially hundreds of billions of dollars a year, and that's just the cost. And it, it you know, the the real tragedy from my perspective is that. You know, this is one of the most common causes of diseases in the United States, and, and conventional medical approaches to use these stents or angioplasties, which probably are just as equally uh, insignificantly effective. Uh, and, and that's their primary issue. But, but no, they're, they're actually their primary component is statins, which is a whole other discussion that we're not really going to go into. Well, we could touch on it, but the, uh, you know, they're, they're, 
they're giving ineffective therapies and there's so many simple ones that really do work and that basically pose no risk or harm to the patient. Right. And, and you know, to me, what was so interesting about this, um, because obviously there's the Lancet study, which stands on its own, but then the New York Times run ran, I don't know if it was a front page article, but a prominent article with the, the headline that stents are useless. And then it was picked up by the Atlantic magazine, which did a whole piece on this. And in the Atlantic was one of the most interesting and I would say provocative quotes that I, I've literally ever heard from a uh, standard cardiologist. And this was from a, a woman, Dr. Med Mandrola. I think she was from UCSF. She, was, she lives in my backyard. And again, I wonder if you could permit me to read her quote, because sure. I think it summarizes uh, exactly what you're talking about. So this is a quote, I found it in the Atlantic magazine, of, of a, a cardiologist who was interviewed by the Atlantic to comment on this study. And the quote is, quote, this study will begin to change of the mindset of cardiologists and patients that focal blockages need to be fixed. Focal blockages are these blocked arteries that they put the stents in. Um, quote, instead, these findings help doctors and patients understand that coronary artery disease is a diffuse systemic disease. A focal blockage is just one manifestation of a larger disease, end quote. Now, the thing that was so shocking to me about that is I, like you, Joe, I've been in medicine for three and a half decades, or I'm not sure how long you have. And I've obviously uh, written about heart disease and have had a lot of patients with heart disease and have talked on the phone with a lot of cardiologists and have a lot of patients who have, have a cardiologist. This is literally the first time I've ever heard a cardiologist admit that there is a diffuse focal disease here of which blocked arteries is only one of the manifestations of. That is such a, a heretical position. I've never heard a cardiologist say that. I've never heard, they say, you have blocked arteries, that's your problem, we're gonna unblock your arteries. To, to suggest that what they have is a systemic disease, uh, is changes everything. I, I can't emphasize that enough. This is not a blocked artery disease. The blocked artery is a uh, may or may not be significant symptom in this disease. So the question that I would actually ask every listener of this, that I don't know what, what day it's run, but if it's run on Sunday and you listen on Sunday, on Monday morning, I would, I would actually hope that people call their cardiologist or go to their cardiologist and say, I wonder what diffuse systemic disease you, that this is a manifestation of. I mean, that's the question. It, it, I, I heard that there's a cardiologist who's saying that this, this blocked artery is only one manifestation, which then, of course, is a perfect explanation of why stents don't work. They're not the disease, they're just one of the symptoms of the disease. If that's the case, then what's my disease? Now, I would be very interested to hear the answer. I think what the answer is going to be is you have high cholesterol. That's yeah. your disease. 
Well, well, SDS, SDS, statin deficiency syndrome. Right, right. But what, what you're, the systemic disease that they're referring to is apparently high cholesterol. Now, I, I don't want to bore your audience or you, but I actually looked up four papers in JAMA, three were in Lancet, showing that life expectancy tends to increase as cholesterol goes up and that there is no relationship between high cholesterol and death or uh, from coronary artery disease or all-cause mortality. There is none. This has been studied over and over again. So it, it, the answer to what their diffuse systemic disease is not high cholesterol, in which case I don't know what their answer is. And in a sense, that's why I wrote the book, because you know, I know that you and I are largely in agreement to what what diffuse systemic disease we're actually talking about here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you want, I can go over the components of that, of which you know, there what, are many. What, why don't you mention the book first? So I wrote a book called Human Heart, Cosmic Heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's basically about exploring, um, amongst other things, it's exploring why people have heart attacks and why people die of heart disease. Because the biggest study that I've ever seen on the incidence is only 41% of the people who have a heart attack have a blocked artery to that part of their heart. And of those, 50% of the blockages come after the heart attack, not before, which means that at least 80% of heart attacks are actually not associated with blocked arteries. In other words, like this cardiologist says, there is some reason why people are dying of heart attacks. I'm, of course, not saying they're not dying of heart attacks. But the blocked artery is only one symptom, one aspect of that disease. It's not the disease, as she points out. Absolutely. So why don't you expand on your perception of what the underlying true foundational cause is leading to this epidemic of heart disease that we have. So it's, you know, I mean, it's obviously complicated or complex, and there's a number of manifestations. But the three most important things that I point out in my book is, so number one, and this was the conclusion of the pathologist Baroldi, is that you know, at least 90% of the people who have a heart attack have an autonomic nervous system imbalance. Specifically, they have a suppressed parasympathetic nervous system tone, which is caused by a number of things, including chronic stress, poor sleep, high blood pressure, diabetes, i.e. high sugar, low fat type of diet, um, smoking, Uh, Lots of things cause decreased parasympathetic tone. This has been identified mostly because of heart rate variability testing, which interestingly shows specifically low parasympathetic tone, not necessarily high sympathetic tone. One would think those are the same, but Mm -hmm. actually they're not. Now, conventional cardiologists is certainly aware of the role of the autonomic nervous system, which is why standard cardiology care includes beta blockers, which are blocking the sympathetic nervous system. But again, the actual research on this does not show high sympathetic activity chronically. 
it shows low parasympathetic activity chronically. And I would admit they're similar, but they're not the same. Uh, what, what's dangerous to people's health is this chronic stress, chronic sleep deprivation, high carbohydrate diet, low mitochondrial function, all the things that you talk about in your book, that leads to low sympathetic tone. And then in the face of a sympathetic stressor, then you have a heart attack. It's not the same to say it's a sympathetic uh, overactivity, which is why I think we could do a lot better than blocking the sympathetic nervous system. So that's one reason. A second reason, and for this, people who are interested in this should go to a website called heartattacknew.com. And under the frequently asked questions, there's a section called Riddle's Solution. And you'll see what the actual blood flow to the myocardium, to the heart muscle looks like. We're, we're sort of told, not directly, but implicitly, that all the blood flow to the heart muscle comes through these three coronary arteries. Although interesting, some people say there's two and some people say there's four. I'm not sure exactly how many there are. It depends which ones you call the main ones or branches, but whatever. There's two to four major coronary arteries. All the blood comes through that. If you get a blockage in one of those, you die of a heart attack. That's the standard line. The reality is, as I like to put it, nature is not so stupid to put all its eggs in two, three, or four baskets. So instead of just these uh, two or three big rivers, so to speak, it puts multitude of tributaries so that the blood supply to the heart is a network of capillaries, not just these central rivers. And so essentially, if you have a blockage in one of the major arteries, your body does its own bypass, it sprouts new blood vessels, perfectly capable of bringing the blood to the other, to whatever area of the heart it needs. And as long as your capillary network is intact, you will be protected from having a heart attack. Now, that brings to the question, why does somebody not have a healthy, robust microcirculation or capillary network? So the answer to that is pretty straightforward. I mean, obviously there's many answers, like we know that cigarette smoking or nicotine poisoning, if you would, is a, has a corrosive effect on my, the microcirculation. So that's obviously one answer. Another answer, which I think is dear to your heart, is people who eat a high sugar, low fat diet, who end up with uh, prediabetes or diabetes, who have chronic inflammation, that is a well-known uh, you know, influence, negative influence on your microcirculation. We know that overt diabetes actually corrodes and destroys your microcirculation, your capillary network. So that's a predominant reason. We have you know, millions of millions of people living on high-carbohydrate diets, low-fat diets, which has an inflammatory effect on their microcirculation. Uh, there are other reasons too, but those are probably the big ones. The other thing, I think, again, which is probably dear to your heart is, um, so to speak, dear to your heart, is the way you, you get a robust microcirculation is through exercise. If you never exercise, your body doesn't have to try to bring more 
blood flow to, to the myocardium and your microcirculation will deteriorate. So human beings are not meant to not move their body ever in their whole life. That's just a not a good strategy. So the more you- Well, well an expansion of that, let me just interrupt for a moment. It's not just exercise because that's the mistake I made. Just yeah. working out every day for an hour for you know, 40, 50 years. And that's not it. I mean, you need some of that, but you need continuous movement throughout the day, non-exercise. So the, the combination is what really provides optimum health. Yes. And, 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 yeah. and you can get into the splitting, you know, getting into the details. And that's obviously crucial as to mm-hmm. how to move and when to move sure. and all this. But yeah. my point is movement and, beca- and staying strong is, this, is a strategy for improving the microcirculation. Now, again, conventional cardiologists is, cardiology is aware of this issue. That's why they use Plavix and aspirin, essentially to, to keep the microcirculation intact. So that's another one. And the third area, which I highlight particularly in my book, which cardiology is not aware of, is, and again, it's something that I think you've written about a lot, is when you stop um, creating or, or making fuel in your mitochondria, and you do what's called a glycolytic shift, and you start fermenting fuel in the cytoplasm, you end up creating lactic acid as a product of this fermentative metabolism. And whenever lactic acid builds up in a tissue, say in your leg or in your heart, you get cramps and pain. In your leg, we call it cramps and pain. In your heart, we call it angina. And that's because of the lactic acid buildup in the tissue, which also restricts the blood flow and makes the tissue more, more toxic. And in your leg, you then stop moving. Your heart can't stop moving. So this, resp- uh, this anaerobic or like glycolytic fermentation continues. The lactic acid continues to build up. That interferes with the ability of the calcium to get into the muscle, which then makes the muscle unable to contract which is exactly what you see on a stress echo or a nuclear thallium scan. You see a dyskinetic or an akinetic muscle, which means it doesn't move because the calcium can't get into the cells because, it's, uh, because the tissue has become too acidic. And eventually the acidosis continues and that becomes the cause of the necrosis of the tissue, which is what we call a heart attack. So in my mind, it's very clear the sequence of events that has to lead to a heart attack. And by the way, that explains this, this sort of dyskinetic area or part of the heart that's not moving. That creates pressure and sort of a sheer pressure in the artery embedded in, the, in that part of the heart, which causes clots to break off there. And that explains why you get clots forming after the heart attack, not before. So. So this acid, lactic acidosis buildup is one of the key events without which you won't have angina and you won't have the progression to necrosis. So those are the three, the autonomic nervous system, the microcirculation, and lactic acid buildup. And luckily, as you say, there are safe, non-toxic, effective ways to address each of those either individually or together. And 
if we want, we can go over what some of those are. No, I think we need to, and and let's start with one of the, the ones that I've known about for over 20 years, maybe 25 years. And when I initially encountered it, and I, I was highly skeptical of it, and I thought, it's crazy. Why are they doing this? And this is ECP or external cardiac or ECCP, external cardiac cardiac pulsation, where you hook a patient up to a machine that essentially has these giant blood pressure cuffs that are around your pelvis and upper legs and lower legs. And you're hooked up to an EKG monitor and the leads will allow the machine to contract quite high to quite high levels uh, when your heart is relaxing or in diastole. So it basically, it's a passive form of exercise, which is just extraordinary and probably one of the most profound ways to improve microcirculation that you mentioned. And so it's a way that you really can't do with regular exercise. It's just it's sort of counterintuitive, but why don't you talk about that? Because I think this is probably one of the most underutilized interventions for helping people recover from cardiac disease and could literally, I mean, we, the, every one of those people who had a stent, they needed ECP. That's right. what they needed. They did not need that stent. Right. So uh, what, what did you think of it? The only thing I would correct you is it's actually called EECP. And that might okay. help people because if they want to find a provider of this technique, they should go to eecp.com. That's eddieeddiecatpaul.com. It stands for Enhanced External Counterpulsation. And so of these three, the, the EECP works on the second one, which is the microcirculation. And it's, it's very simple and straightforward. If you squeeze more blood up to the heart, when the blood is relaxed, i.e. in diastole, you will force the heart to make more microcirculation or more, it has a so-called angiogenesis effect. So you will have make the heart sprout new blood vessels. And essentially, uh, because of that, you will end up bringing more blood to the heart where it's needed. Uh, because the more microcirculation, the more robust it is, the better blood flow to the heart. It's it's really as simple as that. So just like you said, it's like passive exercise. You squeeze really hard on your lower extremities and your pelvis, push the blood up to the heart. You time it so when the heart is relaxed, sprouts new blood vessels. New blood vessels mean let more blood flow, and the blockage becomes irrelevant. This has been shown to be uh, curative, meaning it will stop people with angina for at least five to seven years with one course of treatment. So you do one course of treatment, which is about seven weeks. It lasts for five to seven years, sometimes longer. No angina. It's Medicare approved. It's um, paid for by insurance. It's been studied in the literature. Again, at least 80% effective for getting rid of patients' angina, which, by the way, was the last refuge of the reason for stents, which is now no longer the uh, you know a refuge for reason for doing stents. But this yeah, also pr protects people from having heart attacks. 
In addition to the mechanical effects that you mentioned, it also has hormonal benefits. And I, I was at a presentation recently, a few weeks ago, of, from a cardiologist who was using this in his practice and reviewed some studies that showed that people who were receiving ECP would actually have decreased insulin resistance and their, right. uh, they would tend to lose weight and their blood sugar would be under better control. So I think that's an artifact of the of the fact that it is a type of exercise, even though it's passive, it's still exercising your body. Yes, right. I, I, I'm sure there's other reasons, and more blood flow is is just overall better for your health, so that everything will work better. It's and it increases it increases cardiac stem cells too, which is yes. intriguing. Yeah, very. It's simple, interesting, and effective. And, and relatively hard. cheap. Relatively if you had it, it's, it's cheaper than a stent, or it's certainly cheaper, cheaper than, than a stent by ten times. Yeah. yeah. Even yeah. if you had to pay for it yourself, I mean, if, if your you life depends on it. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I, I'm sorry for uh, butting in there, but I just am a, such a passionate advocate for this technology, uh, and. Yeah. And maybe, and we'll discuss the others. But maybe here's a good time to to jump into the to one of the uh, potential art side effects or uh, results of this type of study if it's embraced and believed by the vast majority of the population. And that is that most people or most physicians who are subspecialists and considering especially choose may not choose cardiology because these stents and these are an intervention that they get highly rewarded for. So if there's not a financial incentive for the people to go into cardiology, they may, you know, the cardiologists might start dropping uh, in significant numbers. Right. <laughs> and, you, well, and you have some, you have, you have some theories on that, so why don't you give us your view? Well, I mean, I don't know. Well, I think we'll see what happens with that. I mean, one would hope that it's it's just about the science and about what's good for patients. And, you know, I would hope that this creates a sea change, not just in doing stents, but I, that's why I can't emphasize enough. What We have to see this as a diffuse systemic disease. And unfortunately... You know, again, as you know, the treatment with things like diet and exercise and stress reduction and ECP is not nearly as lucrative, at least in the short run. And I know that a lot of the hospitals, one of their main financial uh, cash cows, so to speak, is doing interventional cardiology. And so uh, if Medicare cuts them off uh, or the insurances cut them off, that will create a huge change, even in the nature of, of hospitalization and why, why people get hospitalized and what hospitals can actually afford to do. So this is a huge uh, change in, you know, a, a whole lot of things that go into what's happening with medicine these days. All these yes. things, how you live, how you sleep, who you love, how you love, who you express gratitude, these are the causes of heart disease. But we also have some AIDS if you get into some trouble and you need some help. It's mm -hmm. good to have some AIDS, at least that's apparently by the physicians in the first place. Supposedly we're supposed yeah. to help people who are already having some trouble. But I that's totally right. agree. They should, uh, people need to look at how we live our lives. 
Yeah, and I just want to emphasize one point, which I re came to relatively recent appreciation of, in that we know, and conventional medicine admits to the fact that 50% of the population, that's 50%, which is extraordinary, have diabetes or prediabetes. But really the fundamental cause of that are, uh, is insulin resistance. And if you look at a more sophisticated and sensitive way to determine that, which is uh, insulin uh, testing uh, through a, a, a glucose tolerance test, and you measure uh, the insulin levels a few at certain times after the, the glucose challenge, then you'll find the area under the curve and you'll determine and realize that upwards of 80% of the population in this country has insulin resistance. Yes. 80%, which is just extraordinary. And to me, there's a, there's a cure for this. And that cure is, I mean, and cure in the truest sense of the word is it, obviously it has to do with diet, but it's not so much what you eat, it's when you eat. And if you can work your way up to the point where you are not eating for five days or more even, and if you go longer, you're gonna to need to be supervised typically. But if you can go longer for five days and do that regularly in cycles, you can. that is the most powerful metabolic intervention I've ever encountered and can really go a long way to addressing the insulin resistance, which not only contributes to heart disease, but cancer, of course, diabetes, Alzheimer's, and you know, virtually almost all the chronic diseases that we know of. Yes. I mean, I, I, I don't know as much as you do about this. I personally am a huge fan, personally and professionally, of what's called intermittent fasting of up mm -hmm. to 18 hours, which I do myself three to six days a week. Um, yeah, but, but the next level, that's, yeah, you're going to get some benefit because the, the real magic occurs at day three after 72 hours. And th that's when you massively upregulate autophagy, which is your body's ability to digest and remove senescent cells. And a senescent cell is a derivative of the word senile, meaning aged, and it cannot reproduce anymore, essentially just taking up space, clogging up your system, system doing you absolutely no good, just causing damage. And most people don't have lost the ability to effectively clean up clean that up and take out the garbage. And that's what fasting does. And, and in addition to that, it increases stem cells, just like the yeah. ECP, but it does it systemically, not just in the heart. Yes, I, I'm all for it. I, I haven't used that and tested that enough. I, I personally uh, have gotten to the point of intermittent fasting and regular use of saunas as a detoxification aid and you know, walking on sandy beaches and being out in the sun and sleeping uh the right amount <laughs> and i'm sure there's a next step and i'm sure that's probably not the end of the steps for either one of us yeah yeah i've, um, I've just recently adopted i'm doing monthly five-day fast and i'm just started my uh, my third one as uh, as we're recording this today so uh, i think it's a powerful discipline and just massively uh, useful for if you're interested in optimizing your longevity because these calorie you know there's there's studies that show calorie restriction is useful but that's almost impossible to get compliance to but but essentially you're receiving the same benefits because you're not eating for few days. And if you do it like you're doing with this intermittent fasting, you do that maybe even to up to 20 hour fast, you do that for a month, then you can slide into a five day fast and have no hunger. I mean, no, yeah. it's not, it's not really even a challenge. Yeah. 
I, I again, I haven't looked into that, but I, I have no doubt that you're onto something here. Yes. So it, it's all about treating the cause, you know, and then really uh, addressing the insanity, the absolute ludicrousness that conventional medicine has chosen to uh, this to uh, determine what how they're treating these common causes of disease like heart disease in this recent study in the lancet with the stent study i mean i'm i'm hoping it will catalyze the removal of this system and this is it, are you aware of a process that insurance companies go through because if to me it seems that's the key if you if they can stop reimbursing for this procedure because there's good clinical evidence that it doesn't work then that's going to essentially uh, cut the legs out from under the under the cardiologists who are want to be doing who want to continue doing this procedure. Yeah, I mean, I have no insight particularly into that whole world, but I do know that you're right it, that this is very much tied to funding. It's also tied to funding of hospitals, though. So this this is going to have to be. I'm sure they're going to look at this very carefully to see, you know, what is sustainable and what's prudent and Maybe they'll try to repeat the study and do it in a way to get a different outcome, or I, I don't know what's going to happen. My, but again, I, I would like to just keep the focus on what this UCSF cardiologist said. No matter what about stents or bypasses, the blocked arteries is not the disease. This is a diffuse systemic disease, and every patient, every person who goes to a cardiologist, I think, has the obligation and the right to know what, in your opinion, is this diffuse systemic disease that we're treating? Because, you know, you have your wonderful opinion about it. I have, you know, my three-step uh, opinion about what's going, which is very similar. I'm sure the Chinese medicine people have deficient kidney chi or something. And, and these are all you know, ways of describing the diffuse systemic disease that's underlying this. The problem is I've never heard any cogent explanation in standard cardiology of what diffuse systemic disease they think they're treating, besides high cholesterol, which turns out to be like a complete red herring, as they say. <laughs> that's not the problem. People with higher cholesterol live longer. So, you know, that's not the problem. So there will be hundreds of thousands of people that are watching this interview, and a significant number of them will have themselves personally challenged with uh, coronary blockage or heart disease, yes. and or have relatives that have that uh, issue. So I'm wondering what you would recommend to those individuals outside from making a phone call to their cardiologist office and asking them that, because that's, I mean, that's that's a provocative question. But still, they, they need some some basic steps. So, what what would your what would your set of recommendations be? Uh, well, my first one, uh, even though I must admit it's a bit self serving, is to read my book. Because sure, that's a good start. That will give you a a perspective on the history of coronary blockages and their relevance, and another way of looking at it and a very simple, clearly defined program that you can follow with your healthcare practitioner's help and advice uh, that I think will you know, make a significant impact 
on people on your life or the life of your loved one suffering from heart disease and you know that includes looking into diet and looking includes looking into movement it includes looking into you know i say intermittent fasting they should look at your guidelines on five-day fasting it includes mm -hmm. looking into eecp it includes going to an eecp.com website and finding out where the place is in your area asking your cardiologist or your primary care physician for a referral so you don't even have to pay for it it includes if you have overt heart disease, I put people on strophanthus. I put people on emu oil because of the vitamin K content. I have people do earthing or walking on the beach, preferably. I have them get out in the sun. I have them think about their relationships and their uh, connection with love and gratitude. All the things that I think in, in worst case scenario will help your life. Like that's the worst thing that can happen if you do this. Uh, the best they, thing. They won't kill you prematurely like statins. <laughs> I don't know anybody who's been killed by eating better quality food and walking on the beach. Yeah. Almost everybody who does that says, you know what? I feel better. Now, is that enough to fix their coronary artery disease or their angina? Maybe not, but it's a good start. If you throw in some beet powder or fermented beet powder like you have, that's another step. It is, I think, as effective as, as nitrates for treating chest pain um, and helping Probably. with lowering your blood pressure. You know, you know, you know, it's even better than beets, though. That's arugula. a higher density. Arugula, yeah, you got it. So fermented right. arugula powder, which I think we're coming out with. <laughs> Actually, I was going to ask you if you wanted me to send you some arugula powder. Oh yeah, that is. That, I don't know the way we'll have to talk off after the interview, but I, yeah, that is the best is a rule. Yeah. Uh, we have a whole bed it's, of it's it. Sign significantly higher than beets. Yeah. And it makes great powder too. So, yeah. So that's what I would do. Now there are obviously other good writers on this. I don't want to, uh, you know, say I'm the only person who's ever written anything of use. Um, I, I'm not such a big fan of the sort of, vegan raw food approach to this uh you know there there's certainly some popular books and i i know that sometimes they get some positive results but i don't think the long-term benefits are where what where we want to go with this so uh that's not well, my it, it's it, it's certainly better than the standard american diet <laughs> better than the standard. <laughs> yeah that's it's not uh, hard to to beat but uh, yeah yes. there, it's, it's le probably less than optimal Less than but, but you don't need a lot of animal protein, that's for sure. I mean, you can easily overdo it, and most people do. So yeah. you want to keep that high quality and, lo and uh, relatively low amounts of animal protein. Yeah. But I would definitely encourage people to eat good quality fats. And I, I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure that you share that, uh, that uh, sentiment. There's also a very interesting movie about that by a British cardiologist called TheBigFatFix.com, and you can download mm -hmm. the movie. And it's it's really about how fat has never been the culprit, eating fat in causing heart disease. It's always been sugar and related. Yes, indeed, and it's just similar to, with salt. I mean, salt gets a lot of bad raps too, yeah. but it's it's actually the wrong white powder. The the, yes. the, the pernicious white powder is sugar. Right. 
Right. Oh, and refined salt isn't so good either. But you know, Celtic sea salt or Himalayan sure. salt is is fun. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, uh, any other points you'd like to uh, emphasize before we sign off? I don't think so. I think we got the gist of it. Well, just, great. Yeah. I just want to will, emphasize systemic disease, not your arteries. Yeah, we will definitely put a link to your book in there uh, that uh, people can access if they're interested in more information because there's a lot of valuable information in there. Uh, and it also highlights an interesting concept that we didn't discuss this interview but did in the previous one with respect to how the heart is not really function as a pump. It doesn't work that way. Right. Which uh, I think you ex explain really well in your book. So it's an interesting concept that's not really well uh, articulated through even m many of the natural medicine circles. It's a novel concept. So thank you for putting that out there. Yeah, well, I, 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 I can finish with uh, a brief comment on that because, again, on my Human Heart Cosmic Heart website, there's a bunch of articles on, on the heart is not a pump including an article by an anesthesiologist in upstate New York. And he, he wrote a book called The Heart and Circulation, an Integrative Approach. And his book was endorsed by the head of cardiac anesthesiology at Harvard Medical School, who, who said that uh, Bronco First is his name, is correct. There's no way the heart is a pump. And thinking the heart is a pump is the same as believing in Newtonian physics. It's an outdated concept. Uh, there was another website that I recently ran into. I'm not sure the name of it, but it's had to do with ventricular muscular bands. And he said something very interesting because he's a cardiac surgeon who dissected the heart and said, just like the same conclusion that I came to, that the heart is a vortex creating machine. But he said something very interesting, which I had not thought of, which is, when the heart gets sick and it gets hypertrophied and dilated, in other words, stretched out, it actually does start pumping at that point. And as soon as the heart starts pumping, it's in a death spiral because it's such an inefficient pump that it starts using all the energy to keep pumping and it essentially robs your body of the energy which is what you see with people in end-stage congestive heart failure. Mm -hmm. they, they actually, they, they shrivel away. Their tissues die mm -hmm. because they need so much energy to, quote, pump the blood in this inefficient manner. That's, the, that's like the deep backup plan. We're going to die. We better start pumping because that's our only option. And once you're in that, you're basically not got very long to live. So it's very interesting yeah. that this fundamental concept, the heart is a pump, only happens when you're about to die. Uh, which, is, <laughs> which is a very interesting comment on how we see medicine. We think it's normal for you to be in a state where you're basically in a terminal decline. Yes, and there's indeed. nothing normal about that. Yes, uh, sad to say, but uh, that is the way it is now. And you and I are both committed to helping change that paradigm because it certainly is in radical need of a revision yes. to help help focus on the natural and underlying foundational causes of disease. So thank you for all you're doing. Uh, again, you, your Joe. book is going to be great. 
And uh, if you're interested in more details, then that's the point where to go. So uh, great. Well, thank you again. Thank you, Joe.